The Boys is your vision, along with Derek, and is truly a creator-owned book, but is there anything that you have put into The Boys that you ever thought we might say, now, Garth, are you sure about this? Um, nothing that I've thought you guys would, would launch at, because I know you fairly well now. Right. And also, Mickey and I talked about it beforehand, and I got a pretty good sense that when he said creative freedom, he meant it. Um, it it's a complete contrast with... Uh, turning the scripts into Wildstorm, and Ben Abernathy, who's a great guy and a great editor, was had the unfortunate job of having to read, it, read the scripts, mark anything he thought would be trouble, and really just play that, that DC game of trying to decide what you can get away with, what you can't, what you should change before you show it to anyone else, what you should try and get past them, and eventually having to come back to me with the bad news, of which there was always plenty. Uh, <laughs> and we all know what that led to. Right, which, of course, we, so, haven't, had, we haven't had that conversation in the, I guess we're going on our second year now or so, right? <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. saving, you saving that for the, the final year for us? Oh, yeah, I've got some special stuff lined up. <laughs> but, yeah, you'll, you'll really like that. Now, with last month's Issue 21, and I was, I was going somewhere with this, because Issue 21, uh, and a couple of notes here in particular, um, was was very strong content. And mm. has anyone reacted to, or have you seen any reaction to the, the allegorical content of that issue? I haven't. Uh, I don't scar the Internet for reaction the way a lot of people do, so right. there may well have been. One thing I'll say is any time I've gotten in trouble, I haven't seen it coming. Okay. <laughs> Anytime you brace yourself for impact, it never comes. Right. It's something that you write that you think is completely innocuous. Right. That's the one that always gets you in trouble. Right. Now, with, with, the, issue, with the content in Issue 21 in particular, was it hard to work up that story and balance it against the real-world events? Not, not really. It, it was a question of making sure that the story developed the way I wanted it to, while at the same time not not using those real-world events in, in a cheap way, uh, not cheapening what happened on 9-11 right. by doing a, a particular take of it in The Boys. Ultimately, uh, sorry, there's some incredibly strange noise on the line here. Uh -oh, we've, we've, we've been tapped into all oh, right. Okay. Then. <laughs> the, so I'd just like to thank everyone who's joining us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think ultimately, although the events in the book obviously uh, developed and in fact ended very, very differently to what happened on, mm -hmm. uh, in real life on, on that awful day, um, the commentary uh, provided by Huey and the legend, um, I, I think, do give a pretty clear, that commentary does give a pretty clear indication of where we stand. Right. Uh, and I, I would like to think demonstrates that we're not exploiting that just for, for narrative purposes, that we did actually have something to say. Yeah, and I, I think the, the reaction that I've seen to the book was that it was one of the more, for, for, a, for comic book um, allegory, it was poignant and meaningful and did not cheapen the events in any way, shape, or form. That's the reaction that I've seen to it, which is, which is rewarding, I would, I would imagine, from, from your standpoint and certainly from ours. Yeah, it's, it's not something I want to take lightly. Right. Uh, that was the day the world changed. Right. 
Uh, obviously, it was the day the world ended for so many thousand people. Right. Uh, and that in itself is a miserable tragedy beyond description. But what it led to uh, in, in terms of the world changing and in terms of the place the world then became, I think, compounded the tragedy several thousandfold. Yeah, exactly. Now, the entire I Tell You No Lie storyline, as I said earlier, is one of the more extreme, I think, that we've done on a lot of levels. And extreme, I don't mean in a negative way. I just mean it, it was pushing a lot of boundaries mm. um, and certainly powerful stuff as well. Now, do you pay attention to the world around you in the sense of what's becoming more forbidden to say, think, or do? And in particular, I'm thinking of the whole, Homelander's reaction to the Situation Issue 21 and his demonstrative use of the N-word. Yeah, um, well, the Homelander, to me, is an almost entirely negative character. Right. Um, he's, he's really just a series of unpleasant urges kept in check by his own intelligence, which is enough to understand that he can have anything he wants, so long as he doesn't push his luck too far. Right. Because if he ever, if he ever tries to exploit his massive power and strength, and simply run riot, right. uh, they will eventually just chuck a nuke at him. Right. Um, on the other hand, if he plays ball and he, he, he's, he's Vought American's PR creature and he does, he does their bidding occasionally, more as a, as a political tool than anything else, then he can have anything he wants. He can indulge his appetites to whatever extent he wants. So for him to, uh, to be so... So obviously, and yet casually racist, right. to start screaming that word uh, as he smashes his way into the cockpit because he's frustrated with the deep and what the deep has done. It seems to me entirely in character for him, a guy for whom words like that are simply things to be screamed at moments of frustration and tension. Right. It's kind of like, it might help to think of the Homelander as, as having all the... Uh, the self-control of, a, of, let's say, a 14-year-old. Right. Yeah, it wasn't gratuitous. It was just, I, I meant more, I guess, in the sense that that word has become so, ch well, it's always been charged, but especially in the last, I guess it's the last year or so, in, in terms of the media's usage of, uh, you know, the people that, that use that word. That was one that I thought we might get pegged on mm. if it ever got into the wrong hands, you know, which it didn't. Yeah. Um, at least not yet. Um, if, if but. Uh, as I always say when I'm doing this kind of material, if the book, any book like this, gets into the wrong hands, we're all screwed. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> so, and it, if it's not one thing, it'll be another. Exactly. You know? now, now, the next arc we got to go now is lighter um, than the previous, certainly with more upfront humor than the, than the GI storyline. Now, do you find it cathartic to vent in and out like that, to balance darkness uh, with a little more light from arc to arc? A little bit. You'll see, actually, as it develops, that that storyline, and I'm working on the penultimate episode today, right. gets much darker right. as it as it rushes towards its conclusion. Um, it's funny. The last issue I wrote was the St. Patrick's Day one. Yes. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of you know rivaled humor in that. Uh, we, we see G Wiz out in New York celebrating St. Patrick's Day. Fantastic stuff. Is that is that how you really feel about the Americanized version of St. Patrick's Day? It's how I feel about St. Patrick's Day. Full oh, okay. Up. But, <laughs> but I was looking at the script and I was thinking about uh, the sequences, as I say, in which G Wiz are doing their thing. You know, that they're partying and everyone else is. And it occurred to me that you know once I would probably have filled a whole book with that. But now what I'm more interested in is 
looking at you know Huey and Butcher's conversation, right? Uh, looking at what uh, Godalkin is up to in the background with the other G-men, um, looking at Huey trying just desperately trying to find out what the hell is going on with G-Wiz and you know by extension the G-men in general and being frustrated. Uh, so I suppose you know that that's just a sign, a sign of me changing. Uh, once upon a time, I was happy to do a whole party issue, and now I just want to get a few panels of that in, right? Scattered amongst um, amongst a variety of different scenes, which I think is is kind of thematic of the boys in in general. Is you're you're getting a lot of stuff out there in fun, upfront, you know, crazy, over the top moments, but there's such a deeper thing going on even in those scenes or in the arcs or in the issues as a whole i hope so i hope so you know i I like to think that um if you look at uh i tell you no lie gi uh there is this uh one episode in the middle of the story this continuous uh adrenaline rush of horror that uh in the episode that takes place aboard the plane right but the rest of it is an enormous amount of exposition there's a lot of history a lot of politics in there it's a very powerful issue that's that i think that one in particular is the one that a lot of people have been talking about number 21 right right although you know again surrounding that there's a there's a lot more you know it's 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 simply the conclusion right. to a story that once thought Americans started messing around with superheroes began rushing to an inevitable conclusion. Um, looking at uh, at We Gotta Go Now, yes, it starts off lighter. By the end, it's probably the the darkest. It'll probably be the darkest storyline we, we'll have published to date because the, the secret of the G-Man is a truly awful one. I can right. promise you that. Right. Now, when you write these characters, do they have particular voices? And I don't mean I don't mean their their written word, but uh, Butcher and Huey, of course, have strong visual, real world visual cues. But I don't hear Shaw or Peg uh, when I read their dialogue. Do you have voices for them that that they speak to you in? Uh, not exactly. Um, when I write dialogue, it, it mostly just happens naturally. Right. Um, it it just comes out. If if I ever do have to kind of check myself and and run a line in my head, uh, then sometimes I do ascribe actual voices to them. Okay. Uh, if anyone listening to this has ever met Mark Miller at a con, right? he's not bad for Wee Huey. Likewise, Steve Dillon. That's right, that's right. Yeah, you, t- you told me that at one point, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, it, you know, that, that's actually, when you're writing dialogue, it helps to know someone who talks the way your characters do. Um, it, it's a useful thing to have. Now, do they know this? Uh, I don't know. They, they will now. Don't. They will now, of uh, course. But yeah, um, which is not to say that either of them is anything remotely like the character. Right. But, right. You know. Now you work in things into your work and in the boys in particular that you seem to enjoy in life—a good pub, a good pint. Is mm. this a case of writing what you know? Is is it conscious? You know, Warren Ellis gets sent cases of Red Bull. Anyone from the Guinness Company taking care of you? No, no, I've been sent beer, but never officially. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that uh, that Warren liked Red Bull, although that makes a kind of horrific sense. Actually, <laughs> um, no, it's funny because it, in the boys, um, I've been consciously avoiding uh, the the pub sequences that um, that that you'll see in a lot of my older work. Uh, early on, 
Huey and Butcher do go into that gay bar to talk to the right. barman about the the uh, I think it's the whole swing wing. And they talk about their love of of, of beer, and I think it's it's Anchor Steam, right? Well, Huey right. does, but Butcher, you find out at that point that Butcher doesn't drink at all, right? Right. Because as he says, it doesn't agree with me, right. and uh, you know, as time goes by, we'll see exactly why it doesn't agree with him, exactly, and uh, why he doesn't agree with the rest of the world when he when he gets a few down him, um, and. Although Huey obviously likes his beer, no one else in the book does. In fact, in the in the St. Patrick's Day story in that bar, Huey's the only one drinking. Right. You know, Huey and the uh, butcher and the barman are both teetotal. I was just thinking more about how the, the quieter moments like that, you can imagine, you know, that, that those places are real places that, that... Yeah, that's easy to do. Yeah, that's exactly. Very easy to do. You know, I mean, and whether you're drinking or not, bar must be one of the most comfortable places on earth. I'm into that. Yeah. Now, and on that tack, your, your love, your apparent love of America, and New York in particular, comes through in a book like this. Um, what is it about this country and New York in particular? I, I remember we were leaving dinner one night and we were walking up one of the avenues, I forget which avenue, and, and we were walking into the sunset and you were in pure heaven looking looking down, you know, I think it might have been fifth, I'm not sure, but looking looking at the sun coming down in, in New York City and Manhattan and said, you know, this is this is this place is great, you know. Yeah, it's um I, I don't think I ever felt more instantly comfortable more at home in a place than when I arrived here. Okay. Nothing ever felt better. And uh, and it was only natural that I should move here and up here and, and indeed write about the place so much. And Butcher seems to be your stand-in for that, with Huey, with Huey coming quickly along behind him about how great, you know, in particular New York is and, and the, the things that they're experiencing. Yeah, it, you know, those two, those two are very much representative of my... Most negative, and I'm not going to say most positive, but fairly positive uh, views of the world and of America and of New York. In, in this instance, I'll, I'll leave you to figure out who's who. Right. Uh, you know, one of them sees the place as absolutely magical, a wonderland, uh, you know, a, a place to be experienced again and again, and, you know, a never-ending, really, series of, uh, of delights awaiting him and the other one sees it almost as a killing ground right a place where a predator like him will always find fresh food right right now speak, continuing on this with with the, the last question here i got one more after that but you've covered the eastern u.s here with the boys and the south and the west and those points with preacher is there an area of the states that that is next for what you'll for what you'll do next? Is there part of this country that that you also want to explore the uh, uh, the tropes of? Well, you know, it's it's funny uh, because I, I hadn't really thought of the boys in terms of geography, not the way I did preacher. You know, preacher right. was undoubtedly an American story. Right. Uh, the boys, not so much, and you will see them bounce around a bit. Um, the Boys is a, a smaller story than Preacher. It, it's, it's told on a smaller scale um, because the stakes simply aren't as high. You know, you're talking about the quest for God right. on the one hand as opposed to a covert operations tape right. on the other. But at the same time, um, the, uh, the scale, or rather the map, on which the Boys story is told will be broader 
you will see them traveling the world. You know, you've seen them go to Russia, right? And they have other places to go to. Yeah, New York in particular, though, seems to be obviously as their as the place they return to seems yeah. to play play a big role. Whether it's it's a prominent role or whether it's just there in the issues, New York is a character almost in this book. Yeah, very much so, and you know that will continue. Right. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to get into the rebuilding of the Brooklyn Bridge. Cool. And there's going to be an episode where Huey and Mother's Milk sit down and talk about that. Right. Uh, and we'll, 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 you know, that will continue the theme you're talking about. Yeah, it's, you know, it's my home. I love it. It, it is a character in and of itself. It is the most, no matter what else you might say, but it is, it is the most spectacular looking city on earth. Right. Um, and it's the perfect backdrop to set a story like this. Cool. Now, there's a forum out there on the Internet called uh, The V, in which a, a savvy poster uh, suggested that you'd make an excellent novelist. Any thought to uh, a series of, of novels or, or you know, a, a kick-ass series of recurring character novels? Is that something that you've, uh, you've ever thought about toying with? Um, I don't know about recurring characters. I've, I've thought about it. I really have. Um, as in so many things, it... It would take it would take a lot to draw me away from comics, right? Um, on a purely practical level, someone would have to commission me because you know I'd need to fill in that gap in right. income some way. But even beyond that, I'm enormously comfortable writing comics. I really am. I love the form. I love writing the dialogue. I love playing with the dialogue and the storytelling and the various uh, the various aspects of it. I feel so comfortable doing this, and that creative freedom I talked about earlier, that is very, very important to me, um, which is not to say that I probably couldn't get the same level of creative freedom while writing a novel, probably not so much in film, though. Right. Uh, at the minute, I'm happy doing comics, but, but who knows? Cool. All right. Thank you, Garth. Thank you for your time. No worries, man.